that's when I just said, hey, wait a minute, you're not a park ranger. Well, what is it exactly you do? And he goes, well, I'm a game warden. I went, wow, that is the job for me. So many people still look at the title and go, Lieutenant, I had no idea this was in America. I have not heard about this. I said, exactly. So we got to tell the story, but we got to take some safety precautions in that process. Amazon started plot with a thin green line bong included. <laughs> if a hunter or angler runs across this stuff, they've touched it with their ungloved hand. They can absorb this stuff and it's super toxic. So we need to be aware of it. We did an audible version for this book that put an original score, sound effects, gunshots, helicopters, and he did a magical job with it. Hey, everybody, this is retired Lieutenant John Norris Jr., author of Hidden War, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. Our culture needs people that are leaders and not people that are waiting for somebody else to show them how to do it. Those fields of tofu, that was formerly habitat for wildlife. You're killing off wildlife by being a vegetarian just as much as a hunter when he kills a deer. I'm like, well, you see that bush right there? (laughs) There's your bathroom. (laughs) My dad wears a Levi jacket. He sits in front of a sagebrush and he tells me the best camo is hold still. Not that Donnie Vincent is, but be relentless in everything you do. Don't crap out. Go back to the truck with excuses or whatever. Okay, assume I get a deer. How do I cut it up to fit into a Honda Civic? Just get outside. Just get outside and go. Because once you do, it's all gravy from there. Hey, this is Zach Griffith. This is Hannah Barron. This is Jason Phelps of Phelps Game Calls. Hey, guys, this is Cody Rich from the Rich Outdoors podcast. What's up, guys? This is Chad Mendez. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Podcast Network. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com All right, y'all. On today's episode, my guest is retired Lieutenant John Norris, uh, originally of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, John is the author of Hidden War, How Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Wildlands from the Drug Cartels, which, trust me, y'all, is as cool as it sounds like the, <laughs> the, the, the title does not oversell the book. Um, I've been really enjoying getting into it. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to John today. So John, thank you so much for hopping on. Sam, great to be here. Love, love your show. And thanks for having me on. Awesome. So, you know, just to really kick things off. Um, I always just, I always like to get an introduction of my guests and, everyone's got such a different story about how they were brought into the outdoors. And I'd love to hear how are, how are you introduced to hunting and fishing and, and wildlife? Yeah, I was Sam. I was really lucky to come from a conservation based family. Um, and it really started with my grandfather. 
my grandfather was a diehard angler, a diehard hunter. Um, he was career Navy. He was actually deployed uh, in Pearl Harbor on one of the ships that was badly damaged um, right out of high school. But up until that point, he had hunted, he had fished, and he had made it a point um, through his Navy career to make sure he imparted that to his kids. And there's nine kids, uh, you know, on my dad's side of the family, they were a big, big Catholic family. So it's just a conservation family, you know? So then it, it handed down to my dad. Uh, my dad was a, wa a diehard waterfowl hunter, big game hunter, um, champion uh, trap and skeet shooter. He was actually a backup Olympic shooter uh, for the, for the Olympic team and a state champion in California. Um, just a naturally a good shot. So I'm the oldest of four siblings, what my parents called the wolf pack being kind of outdoor wolf like, <laughs> you know, just renegades growing up in the the creeks of the Silicon Valley where we grew up in California. And I know you're a California guy, so you can relate to that transition. But yeah, we, we had a lot of wildlife experiences in California, I actually started my hunting journey, if you will, and conservation journey in Cali. Well, I'll interrupt you right there because, uh, you know, people have heard me talk about this on the podcast and, but I'm sure you've gotten this too. It's like, Oh, they have, they have wildlife in California. Oh, they have hunting in, in California. I thought camo was outlawed. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard all of that as much as I have. Um, and it's people would be amazed to know the, a lot of it is beaches guy. I'll give that, but uh, the amount of public land with the percentage of public land we have in California is huge. The opportunities for hunting and fishing, the different types of wildlife is absolutely insane out there. People do, I don't think realize what is available in the state of fruits and nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're spot on there, brother. And, and that's the thing growing up in California, I never saw it as, you know, really, um, really an urban state while I was there for the simple reason that, you know, at nine years old, I was getting tutelage to get my hunter safety certificate with dad's help. And I think I was, I might've been a year older than that when I shot my first waterfowl species, you know, and I'll never forget. It was a green wing teal. That was my first duck with mom's 20 gauge, you know, that I could barely hold up, but I was just elated to be in the duck blind. And it was San Luis uh, wildlife area. We had to sit in the sweat line and everything to, <laughs> to, to get a draw. Um, so that's all I saw. And then I, you know, everything from predators to black tail deer hunting and, and all those nice um, coastal woodland, um, you know, California blacktail habitat ranches and stuff. And, uh, you know, just got taught the right way. I got taught the right way in, in a state that traditionally isn't known for that. And then fast forward to actually becoming a game warden in California and doing a full, you know, almost 30 years of my career as a fish and wildlife warden in that, in that wonderful state. Um, I can speak to what you just said. I mean, California is as diverse as it gets, you know, you go up to Mount Whitney at 14,000 feet and you've got these monster mule deer, you know, over the white mountains, right? The X nine C zone. And you've got blacktail down on the coast and you've got antelope, you've got tule elk, you know, mm -hmm. the, the biggest and best tule elk anywhere really in the world are throughout California. So it's a super diverse state. It certainly has its issues politically and it has its issues with urbanization and, and encroachment, but you're right. There's a ton of public land left on the national forest side. Um, and then a lot of other public places that we have as an agency that you can hunt. Um, but it's challenging. It's challenging in a state that's that populated. And we even see some of the bigger, you know, urban sprawls happening here in the more developed areas of Montana mm -hmm. that are eventually going to have a, uh, they're going to have an effect. 
good, bad, or indifferent, they're going to have an effect on wildlife management. They're going to have an effect on encroachment. And just like we saw in California and the other urban states. So it, that's something I'm sure you get questions on a lot. And I get questions on a lot on management issues. And the thing is, as we both know as conservationists, it's not just about going out hunting and fishing and having a good time. It's about paying it forward for the next generation and really being good conservationists and managers. Um, whether we're turning in poachers, whether we're putting our time into uh, protecting and preserving precious waterways and green belts and habitat, we all got to be involved in it, you know, and uh, that's something I learned the hard way in Cali. And I'm glad to, in my new home state of Montana to feel very much immersed in it still, even though I'm retired and, and doing it more on an outreach basis now. And I think that's that's the biggest frustration as a hunter in California is is that political aspect to it, that it has been so politicized to the point where everything is legislated. And I'm sure you felt that to some extent as a game warden, where so much power is taken away from fishing game to make science based and, uh, and, and, and sensible based decisions when it comes to wildlife, because we have commands being, being sent down on, we would have commands being sent down on high based on emotional votes and campaigning rather than how wildlife should be managed. Yeah, sadly, you're spot on on that, Sam. And, and that was something I can, I can speak generically for a lot of my colleagues as game wardens. Um, you know, we all come from hunting and fishing backgrounds and we believe in conservation as a good management tool to protect and keep species thriving, but they need to be managed. And as you know, and, and as our listeners primarily know, hunting and angling does that. We do more for the sport of conservation by going out there and doing that just in the money we put into hunting licenses, tags, weapons, ammunition for the Pittman-Robertson Act. There's so much funds that we do outside of just joining conservation agencies and doing fundraisers, say through Ducks Unlimited or Rocky Mountain Elk or whatever. We're hitting it from both sides. And when you take the emotionality of how you feel about hunting or or harvesting animals or killing animals for conservation, um, take the emotionality aside and use the science and the logic. The two are not synonymous. They're polar opposites, as you mm-hmm. know. And I had to cross that bridge and fight that fight in California my entire career. And there were honestly laws that, that were enacted that we on the, on the law enforcement division front as game wardens being the first line contact for the public that, you know, when you, when you think of California Department of Fish and Game, you don't normally see a biologist every day yeah. because they're out doing studies. They're immersed somewhere. You see game wardens, you know, I, we're the PR, you know, uh, tool, if you will, of the agency because of where we're at and who we're contacting. And um, there were a lot of, you know, uh, hunting seasons and opportunities that were being banned and limited for what we thought were not scientific based logical reasons. But we got to do our job. We took an oath. We're not going to complain about it. We're not going to blame anybody. We're going to do what we need to do, but we're going to speak freely and honestly outside of those circles of what constitutes good management, bad management. Uh, the California Mount Lion, uh, you know, from being a California you know, mm-hmm. alumni like me, that's just, you know, that's been a hair puller forever. Um, when we lost management of the lion in 92 and it became a protected mammal, and now we have very stringent depredation issues, you know, and, and regulations. We, we can't do management hunting for them, which was very unfortunate. We have a lot of cat problems in California. Um, a, a, a mutual guest and, and friend of mine that you've had on your show, Jack Carr, we talked about that on his podcast. And uh, 
when he was on ours and when I was just on his and he said, Hey, you know, this California mountain lion thing, man, and, and the wolves now in Montana, how, how does it sit up there in Northwestern Montana? And it, it was just, it's just a great, great topic to discuss. Cause the bottom line is we need management for our predators, for our big game, for our upland game, our waterfowl mm-hmm. species, and they're going to thrive. And we don't always see that happening. And then we see agencies like California department of fish and wildlife having to be on the receiving end of having to depredate a cat. That's a public safety issue. Now that's got a lot of emotion, a lot of press attention, a lot of opinions, a lot of hot emotions when with, with proper management practices, those incidents, I can honestly say would be lessened significantly. And that's sometimes frustrating, but that's politics, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got the mountain lion, we've got now bobcats. I don't know uh, how, how long ago uh, did you retire? Um, I retired December 7th to be nitpicky of 2018. And I was still hunting bobcats in California as a non-resident. I still get non-resident tags down there mm-hmm. and I still hunt a zone blacktail and wild hogs and turkeys and love that state for hunting. Oh, yeah. I'm still down there a lot, you know, for work, like, like we said before the, the recording, but, uh, but yeah, when that bobcat band came and we had in, in the middle of the season, the Bobcat season that was supposed to go through February of last year mm-hmm. and it dead ended on uh, what was it? Midnight, December 31st or whatever. Yep. I went, wow, this is crazy. You know, being a Bobcat hunter and being very selective and knowing how much that population is, is thriving and how much management is, is uh, beneficial there. That was frustrating. And a lot of us on the game warden front said the same thing. We said, okay, get your maximum number of tags and, you know, let's have our, I, I call it the hail Mary hunt, you know, and I, I actually harvested, I think it was three, two or three. Yeah. Bobcats before that deadline. Um, and those are very, very special conservation memories that I'm going to have forever, but, and who knows if it'll come back. You know, I honestly can't tell you at this point, what's going to happen after the five-year study phase to determine what will or won't happen with bobcat hunting um, in the golden state. It's, it's, it's interesting because I've heard a lot of the same stories from my friends that were, and for the most part, the people I know don't go out on a bobcat hunt. It's kind of the tag you pick up. To, while is. you're hunting other stuff, or maybe, you know, you're just doing a general predator hunt and calling and seeing what comes in, you know, whether it's a bear or whether it's a, you know, a fox, a bobcat, whatever it happens to be. It, everyone I knew that was out there <laughs> was, yeah. was like, I'm picking up my max tags and I'm going on a bobcat hunt. I would like to actually look at the numbers and see if that, because there had to have been a record amount of bobcat har- bobcats harvested. Uh, at the end of the, by the end of the year, it had, there's no way. Cause everyone was out doing that for their last, last hurrah. Yeah. yeah be- it, it, it's spot on. I have a little bit of funny story about that. Cause uh, a very, very good friend of mine and uh, my taxidermist I use exclusively now. And I have for about the last 15 years, he's also a sponsor of our fingering line uh, film series and supporting all the things I'm doing in my brand, John Hayes from Hayes taxidermy. Got to give him a shout out up here in Libby, Montana. Um, I, of course, you know, brought those tat, brought those, those cats to him to do nice things, preserve the skins, tan them properly and everything else. And he actually got, uh, an abundant number, uh, or significant number of cats from California before the band deadline happened and has those tags. I think my tag and some other hunters tags pinned up in his studio to say, Hey, this is a historical piece of paper because it may never happen again. Mm-hmm. And this is some of them were literally up to those last couple of days in the window. I know one of my cats I harvested was within a couple of days of the deadline. And 
you know, that's, that's a sobering thought, but here, here a, a Montana taxidermist is seeing that dynamic happen down in California and doing work for California hunters um, and feels the same way. You know, it's, it's the same thing when you come from a conservation based state, like you and I are fortunately in now in, in Montana and just, you know, working with our, my, my local game warden here and forest service LEOs and, and biologists um, just the mindset is so refreshing that we have a conservation mindset and we're kind of a state of action when it comes to conservation problems, whether it be depredation, public safety animals, um, you know, the grizzly bear problem we have at a glacier park and the ones we have here in the yak and the cabinets, we have that issue. We had timber wolves um, up until we started doing a lot of uh, management and opening up that hunt a little bit, elk herds, whitetail herds in some of my quote unquote, secret holes that my uncle and I have developed for the better part of 15 years for some of the big whitetail you see on the back wall here. Um, we were so impacted by, by timber wolf packs, nothing was in the woods. I mean, you couldn't find a deer. We were finding, mm -hmm. you know, fawn kills. It was just, a, it was a hot mess. And we brought that hunt in. We started to thin them out a little bit. Uh, they're an elusive, amazing predator. They're tough to hunt. And sometimes it's like you said, it's an incidental, like a bobcat. You might see one, you might not. Um, but we've seen some of these herds come back in these traditional areas that I've got personal experience of really busting a lot of brush and putting a lot of miles on the ground for um, really since early 2000s. I've seen how the whitetail population, the, the limited mule deer we have in this part of Montana and the elk are doing better because there is some pressure on the timber wolves. And and, and now that we're hunting them, we're by no means decimating them. They're thriving, yeah. but we're doing more studies. You know, our biologists have more funding. It's just a better part of the system. And we can use what we've done with the timber wolves here in Montana and what we're doing with, with grizzly bear management thus far, not hunting yet, but we are doing the best we can on management and getting the data we need biologically to determine, do we need a limited hunt on grizzlies under the conservation model? in montana and a lot of officials would say yes but we're, we're kind of mm -hmm. too early to say for sure but my point is those are the studies and those are the experiences boots on the ground that really are going to help wildlife um and take the emotionality of it if you don't like harvesting animals you don't eat wild game i get that and you know it's 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 interesting sam but when we talk about the hidden war stuff and i'm presenting to every faction of political affiliation you know i've presented to legislatures, you know, in a very, you know, a very left-leaning organization, uh, right-leaning conservatives and conservationists and 2A guys like us. Um, I've presented to large groups of cannabis growers that usually lean very left, not typecasting anybody, but just putting generalities out there, may not believe in hunting. But the bottom line is, whether you're a preservationist and want to protect animals and never see them harmed, or you're a conservationist and want to harvest them for meat and for vitality and for the, the benefit of the species, we can all agree we want to keep the animals out there. We can all agree we want to protect our waterways. We all agree we want to protect habitat because ultimately that's the ultimate killer if we take away water and habitat. And we poison and pollute streams, right? Like the, the cartel hidden more problem I, I fought the latter half of my career. And I find a very unifying message after talking to so many very diverse groups politically and from a frame of mind, a different standpoint that we can all unite on one thing. And that is we want to see our wildlife out there. We want to see our woods safe and thriving with abundance. So the next generation can see a steelhead trout, can see a Rocky mountain elk, you know, up here in, in our part of Montana can see a tule elk, 
mm-hmm. one of the biggest and most beautiful tule elk that's such a small little subspecies there, you know, and, uh, of, of the, of the, uh, of the elk family. And we have some of the biggest and best and most prolific and abundant tule elk in the state of the golden state of California. That was amazing to see those animals and hate to see any decimation of those. And that's what we can unite on. And I think bring people more together, not be so politically divided, you know, like we are right now, um, all over the world on a ton of issues. Absolutely. And, and, you know, hopping into, uh, Talking a little bit about Hidden War, you know, you, um, uh, I'm still working through the book. I just finished up uh, uh, the chapter. You guys officially formed like the, okay. the, nice. um, are you, you, we went through the Operation Pristine. Okay. Uh, and then it was like the official formation and you got the approval and, and everything. And, and so uh, I want to say I'm probably about a quarter of the way through the book. Um, nice. Nice. Yeah, again, moving uh, moving puts a cramp in my my reading time, unfortunately. Yeah, but. I mean, you know, it, it's it's funny. And for, for first of all, thanks a lot for diving into the book and and addressing it. I, I figured it would hit a it would hit a hot chord with you. Um, and you know, you mentioned having a hard time to read. I'm in the same boat, you know, and I have to read for a living and write for a living. And at the same time, I'm finding myself listening to Audible books when I'm running around or listening to podcasts, you know, because. Mm-hmm we're so dynamic in what we're doing in these type of uh, outreach businesses like you're doing. So kudos to even having a minute to read a chapter uh, with your move and getting settled in the new house and all that. But, uh, but thank you for doing so. Um, And yeah, that was, uh, as you can see from the story so far, that was definitely, I think the pinnacle of what I consider a very blessed and amazing career working with amazing people and and having a, a dream job. Um, not without its challenges for sure that you'll read about in the book, but I mean, just an overwhelming, amazing experience. But those last six years when MET was formed was by far, I think the pinnacle, not only from the standpoint of how dangerous the work was, but I think how relevant it was of not only the dent we were making, but the message we were sending and then, and that MET and the entire cannabis enforcement program, law enforcement teams in California are doing today and it hasn't let up. So thanks for taking the time on it. It's definitely not something I ever thought I would do, <laughs> you know, as a game warden when I started the Academy in 1992, man, that was, that was uh, not even a, an afterthought, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. I, um, you know, I, I, that's one thing I always make, make time to do is I, I try and read and in, in the mornings I'll, I'll go do my workout then I'll get my breakfast. I'll sit down when, while I'm eating my breakfast, put down a, you know, a couple of chapters if I can. And, uh, it's, this is your book came is like a perfect timing because I finished up some stuff and I was, I just finished reading, uh, Jack's latest book. Uh, oh, I finally, awesome. finally got to dig into the devil's hand. Yes. And, uh, and so this is kind of like a perfect transition now back into nonfiction, but like from the, it's, you know, still that kind of tactical, um, uh, kind of the tactical special operations vibe to it. So it was like the perfect time for me to, to dig in. And, uh, it was an easy, easy transition, but, you know, speaking of, you know, you in the Academy, what was it that really prompted you to want to become a game warden? Like, was it just something you always wanted to do from day one or was it, uh, was there some like moment that really kind of flipped that switch? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Cause that was, that was probably what I call divine intervention in my life to make the right choice. Because if I had known what a game warden was that they were even out there when I was growing up and learning to hunt and hunting ducks at nine and 10 and 11 with my dad, 
there would have been no question. I would, have, I, I would have known right away that was for me, but unlike the guys I was in the Academy with that had been hunting, you know, since an early age, like myself, like you as well, um, that had run, you know, had a game warden check them in a camp with their dad, let's say, or with their it's grandpa's hunting camp early on. And they're like, wow, man, that's the job for me. I'm aligned with, with like-minded thin green line conservationists, 95% of everybody I'm going to contact are like this cool family that I'm validating a deer for. They're inviting me to dinner in their camp. I'm <laughs> sitting here telling stories for hours. They're becoming my eyes and ears, my informants for wildlife poachers, true violators. But I never saw that. I had had all these years of hunting. And for some weird reason in California, never ran into a game warden. And so I was in an impacted uh, engineering program for civil engineering at San Jose State University, following in my uncle's footsteps because my uncle Mark was a very successful civil engineer. He worked outdoors a lot. He drafted and engineered hydrology things for dams and water diversions and did a lot of real neat, you know, um, engineering drawings and, and working up that kind of stuff in the outdoors. So I was taking drafting classes in high school. I was, you know, on the fence of what I was going to do in college. And I was also dabbling with an offer from the ROTC program at San Jose state to get into special forces in the military under the ROTC program. Um, and the very first winter break I had from that first year, uh, as an engineering major, as a freshman at San Jose state, I was on a winter storm hike with my best friend and race team partner that I've known since second grade and with his pack horse. And we were in Henry coast state park, which if you remember that part of California, I know you weren't from the Silicon, you know, the Bay area, so to speak, but Henry Co is 105,000 acre state park. Now it's the second largest next to Anza Borrego down in San Diego County. And it's uh, it's just amazing. It's got great waterways. It's got a lot of old traditional pristine um, blacktail hunting and fishery private lands that have been bought by parks. So that's where I cut my teeth. That's where I learned to backpack. I learned all the mistakes. <laughs> I made a lot of mistakes, bad gear, <laughs> not having the right rain gear. So we're on this, we're on this uh, winter. We just finished finals. He and I get dropped off with this horse and we're going to go into co in the middle of December in rainstorms when no one's in the park. And we're going to go find new lakes. We haven't seen before in the new backcountry. And we were 13, almost say 13 and a half miles into the backcountry after hiking all night. In a, in a downpour and finally found a place called Coit Lake that had a horse camp in it. And by the good graces, we found this lake because we didn't have GPS at the time. That was way before that. I and mean, we're talking like, you know, uh, the early nineties and we had a fire we weren't supposed to have, but we had to dry stuff out. You know, we had to not be hypothermic and get our stuff dried out. And the next morning while we had this fire going and we're breaking down this horse camp to, to start hiking, here comes this four wheel drive green truck and compound low winding down this steep hill. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, the park ranger's checking us out here. I'm th that's a dedicated park ranger, man. We're, we're, we're miles from no one, you know? Yeah. And it turned out to be the County game warden, a guy by the name of Henry Coletto that was a County game warden and worked hand in hand with our state game wardens and was the native resident of the Gilroy position. He just knew it by the back of his hand. And what I didn't know at the time was that's uh, kind of the end of the deep rut for our trophy blacktail and having good blacktail genetics back in that park. There was a lot of poaching that went on in that park. Um, and he was looking for that and was actually suspecting that we were one of those poaching camps when he realized we were a couple of dumb college kids that didn't have the right gear. Um, he just was kind of going to go about his merry way. He was going to let the fire violation go because he felt sorry for us. And 
That's when I just said, Hey, wait a minute. You're not a park ranger. Well, what is it exactly you do? And he goes, well, I'm a game warden. I went, what do you do? And he's, <laughs> I said, you, you, you just work out of the truck. You go wherever you want. Do you ever have a partner? No, I'm by myself. Sometimes I have my dog with me. I'm like, wow, that is the job for me. Catching poachers behind the lines, deep in the backcountry, running a four wheel drive in the outdoors. And I, and I happen to see him in Co Park, which is really my alma mater. I think inspiration. I love that park still to this day. Spend a lot of time in it because it catalyzed this. But what are the odds, Sam, that I would run into this game warden in the winter when no one else is in the park and happen to run in and have a two hour conversation with him? That was just meant to be. Oh, and yeah. So my wheels were spinning. And, and my brother from another mother, Jeff, looked at me after that contact and we started hiking. He said, you got this weird grin on your face, man. You're, I can see your wheels spin and I can see it in your eyes. I go, I think I'm about to make a big ass life change. And I think I might rattle some cages, but I think I'm changing my major right away when we get out of this hike. And sure enough, like a week later, I was at the criminal justice advisor's office at San Jose State for a whole nother department having that conversation. Hey, does this degree get me to be a game warden? He said, well, yeah, it should be anything. FBI, San Jose police, DEA, BLM, Forest Service. But we placed a lot of game wardens. And I was really lucky because besides a really good engineering school, San Jose State happened to be one of the best criminal justice schools in the country. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that. I never targeted that. So I was off to the races that semester. I was full speed ahead. And, uh, you know, finished my bachelor's in criminal justice and did my master's as well through that really good program um, and got on the hiring list and the waiting list and the testing for years and waited. And back then in the early 90s, brother, it was it was really hard for a white male without military service to make the cut, because even though I scored really high on all the testing, um, we had affirmative action going at the time. Uh, the game warden was a very sought out position. So we might have four positions and four to six thousand people would test statewide for it. And if you were a military veteran, you automatically had 10 preference points in your score or it might've been 15 preference points. So I scored well, I got on a list and I was told by a chief, he said, Hey, we really want you, but we're going to keep you on a hiring list. We're not going to hire for at least two or three years. I said, okay, I'll wait. So I started working juvenile probation for some of the youth authority slated kids that were in juvenile hall and cut my teeth on interacting with, you know, kids that had troubled youth and bad peer groups. And, you know, some of them had some hope to, to change their lives. And uh, a lot of it was through outdoor experience they hadn't had in urban settings. So I was starting to introduce that concept with them as I was counseling and being in lockdown units with these kids. And 11 months into that part-time job, while I was finishing my master's degree, I got the call from that same chief. And he said, you know what, Mr. Norris, we have four civilian slots to an already full academy and you and three other guys have made the cut but we have to accelerate your background investigation and we need you in an academy at Napa Valley college in February. Can you do that? And I want to say this was like the end of December. And I said, yep, <laughs> whatever it takes, man, I'll go anywhere. And the old tactic of say yes and figure it out later. <laughs> that, I, well, yeah. You know, when it comes to that, it's that you, you just don't say no. You're like, Oh, well, yeah. hmm, can I get out of this job? Can I finish my degree? No. So everything went on hold. I went on hold from finishing my master's. Um, I went to the academy. I, I quit my job at probation. Obviously, everybody's really excited that I'm very supportive around my work group. Um, and then the next thing I know, I was in an academy as a wet behind the ears, 21 year old, you know, fishing game wildlife cadet. 
um, in a stress academy, police academy at Napa Valley College for seven months. And uh, it was just all going to the races from there. And then I got deployed for my first assignment down in your old neck of the woods, um, Riverside County. I was in the Inland Empire, mm-hmm. Temecula, Lake Elsinore. Um, I had no idea what that place was. I think I'd been to Disneyland in L.A. a couple times <laughs> growing up. So when uh, when the cat when Captain Jim Barton said was giving us our assignments halfway through the academy and he goes, OK, Mr. Norris, you're going to Lake Elsinore. And I got really excited because it sounded like Lake Elmanor, <laughs> Northern California, <laughs> Eastern, really beautiful. And he goes, no, I don't think you heard me correctly. I didn't say Elmanor. I said Elsinore. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I said isn't, and then all these park rangers around me that have worked LA, Orange, and Riverside County that were now doing laterals to in my academy to become game wardens. They're like, you know what they call that, Norris? They call that Lake Hell, Senor, because it smells like hell and it's crazy. And I went, oh man, this is going to be Western. It's going to get mm-hmm. Western. And it did. And I can honestly say it was the best, best, best three year start of my career I could have had because I was thrown into the deep end with both feet um, with every type of enforcement challenge down there. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And then I got to come home in 95 after three years and be back in the Silicon Valley where I was born and raised. And the 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history designed by John Browning. The 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U S military from 1911 to 1985 while Colt produced the original almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Really up through the Met days um, until I went statewide, I did most of my career there and it was fantastic. So one thing, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of people totally realize is the amount of law enforcement. I mean, a game warden is a law enforcement officer. You're an LEO, you know, it's, I think, and I think it's also because similar to like when you're a kid, you, people don't understand the distinction between park rangers and biologists and game wardens. And, and, you know, before we hop into some of this other stuff, uh, can you can you kind of explain for people that may not fully get the the delineations like you know you got park rangers you got game wardens you got wildlife biologists what you know what kind of do those different job uh, I guess jobs and t- entail Yeah and I'm glad you're asking that question because a game warden is a very specific um dedicated law enforcement officer to enforcing wildlife crimes whether it be hunting fishing you know um stream bed alteration water pollution tainted cannabis wildlife trafficking you know black market internet sales of ivory of sturgeon row you know bear gallbladders you name it um but the thing that you know the thing that i i talk about a lot sam and 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 you see this in hidden war when we went on to the tactical special operations front to develop a really high speed team to fight the cartels of all things as, you know, the, the new super poachers, I like to call them, um, that legitimized game wardens in a way that people didn't really see before. Um, yet we were always very legitimate and very professional and very efficient and, and good at what we do well before that. But when you think of a game warden, you don't think of them as being equivalent to a city policeman, a sheriff's deputy, a federal agent, you know, and, that's that's really kind of a travesty because game wardens go through a police academy that every other law enforcement officer, whether they're federal, state or local, go through. And then they have about another month to two months of training within that academy to be fishing game specific, 
wildlife forensics, weapon ID, uh, you know, how to investigate um, waterfowl ID and do wildlife crimes as well as the other stuff. So in California, as an example, we have a state ID that identifies us our state fish and wildlife ID for the agency. And then we're federally deputized under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service with a federal ID to work federal cases anywhere, you know, as they relate to interstate transport between Lacey Act felony stuff from California to other states. And we're sworn and trained to do every other type of crime. So a traffic violation that's really serious, a drug crime, a rape in progress, um, we run across that all the time as game wardens. We are mm-hmm. so far into the backcountry. Where do hardcore criminals want to dump a body? Where do they want to do a drug deal? Where do they want to commit a sexual assault? Um, they happen in our wildlife areas. They happen in our forests. So we run across this stuff all the time. Or we're running through the cities. And you know, being an old San Jose Silicon Valley guy, I would be in those fringes of all these really pristine backcountry behind lock gate places working hardcore wildlife stuff. But I'd be in the city, you know, two hours later. And I'd be backing up California Highway Patrol on a felony car stop, or I'd be, you know, executing one myself because some real heinous crime goes down right in front of me. And yeah, I got a four by four truck, but it's equipped to stop vehicles and we're equipped and trained to do everything else we need to do. So we do it all. Um, But we specialize in the wildlife stuff. And we should spend most of our time doing the wildlife stuff, because when you look at the number of game wardens in California per capita compared to the number of city police officers and sheriff's deputies, you know, game, we don't say we're part of the thing. We are the thin green line for nothing. Well, we're, we're like anorexic, skinny, thin green line. (laughs) There are so few of us in the state of California for what could be, I think we're at roughly 500 and some change. Now we've added a lot of um, positions under the cannabis enforcement problem, not only the met team, the specialized tactical unit, but the private land groups that are very specialized and tactically savvy themselves doing the private land grow inspections. And that's got us more bodies. But when we started into cannabis enforcement, because of all this heinous crime going on there, um, that taxed our patrol guys and gals from having a patrol presence for traditional wildlife poaching, for commercial wildlife poaching, for marine enforcement. So um, yeah, the game wardens do a lot of stuff. And I'm glad you asked that question. It's kind of a, a kudo and, and, and kind of a validation to what we do. And um, in retirement or what I call phase two. Now, the one thing hidden war in that story of what the Met team has done and continues to do, it just validates how dedicated and how um, committed game wardens as a whole are to doing the job because we're not highly paid, as I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah. Um, we could all do more lucrative financial law enforcement jobs or private sector jobs, um, but we don't do it for the money. We do it for the love of our wildlife, wildlands and waterways, and we love our public. And that's the bottom line. And, you know, they didn't pay me a lot, but they, they still paid me and gave me a, a good living to go out and do what I absolutely love to do. So I'm grateful for that opportunity. And I can say that, you know, almost every other game warden in every other state I've worked with or I know we're all in it for the same reasons, man. So it's um, it's a cool family. And it's not only a family of game wardens, but you're part of that family. Thin green line guy. Joe Rogan's part of that family now. Jack Carr, as you know, who amazing SEAL team career and amazing author and friend of ours both. Um, but he's also a diehard conservationist. You know, his mm-hmm. I, his youngest daughter who read both my books and is inspired to be a game warden because of it, which is a huge honor to me. You know, when Jack mentioned that on, on his podcast and said, you know, she took her first elk at like seven or eight years old and uh, now she wants to be a game warden. I was I was blown away by that that's part of the thin green line. Jack's one of those guys. So this thin green line is everybody. 
this involved and committed that if they're not on the front lines fighting the fight, that's fine. But at least they have the knowledge. At least they're spreading the word. They're sharing the message and they're making sensible decisions legislatively. And they're putting their money where their mouth is to not just talk about it, but to really go out there and, and be part of the solution to keeping our wildlife out there. Now, you know, hopping back to the kind of the start of your career a little bit, um, you know, for those that don't know Southern California, for those that avoid <laughs> knowing about Southern California, um, you know, the Inland Empire, it's not uh, not the furthest part south of California, but it's far right. enough south yeah. to where you get a lot of uh people crossing illegally up in that area, you know, uh, people that are making their way kind of inward to the state, they, they end up settling there a lot. And I'm curious, do you think if you're, you had started somewhere else, you know, if you had been up at Lake Almanor, um, it, if you hadn't been kind of in the thick of it down there, do you think your career path would have taken this same turn with, you know, starting the Met team and, and this kind of more tactical special operations work that you put in? You know, that's a question I've never heard asked. And, and that's interesting, man. That's a great question. <laughs> Thanks for asking it for one. And yeah, I could say that it would not, it would not have been a done deal that it would have led to the development of Met it wouldn't have been a done deal that I would have been so um, locked into this. Now, a lot of the stuff that Catalyze met were some of our early experiences with, you know, the trespass, illegal black market cannabis grows that these cartels are embedded in America doing. And it was really finding them in the Silicon Valley, like my first book, War in the Woods goes into and linking up with the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office and their marijuana eradication team. And, And those guys bringing us on as equals because they, a lot of them came from woodsy, excuse me, outdoor conservation backgrounds. If it hadn't been for those sheriff's deputies, good friends like Craig Dibert, um, you know, who's no longer with the sheriff's department and retired Sergeant John Spagnola, just to name a couple. Um, and I'm leaving some guys out, no disparage there, but guys like that, that said, Hey, these game wardens are really savvy in the woods. They track good. They hold up. They're quiet. They can be hunters with us of these cartel bad guys. Um, we wouldn't have been involved in that. But the interesting thing about your question is in Riverside County, I saw a ton of illegal immigration going on. Uh, Border Patrol would literally be doing traffic stops in my rural front yard on Paula Road on the San Diego Riverside (laughs) County border where I rented my first house. And I would have illegals running through our back Manzanita forest that I butted up against while I'm sleeping at home, I go on, Whoa, this is crazy. Um, and the one cool thing that did happen down there that got me really intrigued tactically was a good friend of mine, Travis Tippett, who was a forest service LEO in the Cleveland national forest down in Riverside County. We had started hunting. I taught him to hand load and we were becoming really good friends because we were in the same enforcement district working together. He said, Hey, we're starting to get these cartel grows cannabis in the Cleveland national forest. And this was early 90s, right out of the academy. So this was right when the cartels were kind of at the beginning, generally the first five years, we think, of getting into the San Diego County Forest and then up into Riverside and working their way north little by little. And Sam, what happened there was I got to go on a raid with him with Forest Service LEOs, drug task force guys in the Cleveland 
which I've been working like spotlighters the night before. Now I'm in camos. I'm going with Forest Service in their tactical gear. We're doing a small unit military type operation, you know, small unit, you know, narrow trail tactics. And I saw the the bunks, the camouflage hooches, you know, the um, the plants, the real nomadic kind of you know, almost like a Viet Cong camp. I would hear about from the military veterans in my family that were engaged and, and deployed for the Vietnam conflict. And I was fascinated by it. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Who does this? This is not your illegal immigrant that's just trying to get a better life for himself in America that, you know, wants to be part of the American dream and chase it like we all all do and should, you know, um, this is deportable felons coming in from transnational criminal organizations that are highly organized, highly funded, highly violent and highly efficient at growing toxically tainted weed for the whole black market in, in the U.S., methamphetamine, synthetic fentanyl now, prescription opioids and the human and child sex trafficking that's off the rails right now with attention media enforcement attention, same criminal groups that we are fighting on these clandestine weed farms in the California forests. And that was my first exposure to it. And I was not camouflaged properly. I didn't have any of the right gear. I have some very old, embarrassing pictures of me and Travis standing (laughs) next to 11 foot plants. And I got like a cream colored white t-shirt underneath my, you know, three color old army, uh, green fatigues. But the bottom line was that was, I said, I can't deal with that problem as a game warden running around in a traditional uniform, hiking by myself, mm-hmm. with a rifle and a pistol and a battle belt full of police protective tools. It's just not going to work. Did I know at that time that it would lead to what we built with Met and become a specialty and really a passion? I didn't, but I think subliminally, now that I think about your question, um, that's the reason why when I, I started to see the tactical training Forest service was doing, um, one of the coolest things that happened during that time I was with Travis and his team doing a lot of work with forest services, they had become embedded with, uh, the third special forces guys, the green berets, when they weren't deployed, they were back in, you know, in drug counter drug task force work in California. And I was going to land nav classes with those guys tracking camouflage field craft and I was, I was completely turned on by the level of getting that proficient. Yeah. Um, and with family tutelage of how to stalk, how to be quiet in the woods and snow and ice and everything like hunting deep white tail bucks or elk up here, it was all kind of coming together. So when I transferred from Riverside County and went up to the Bay area within a couple of years, myself and, and my good partner who, who's now a cannabis captain as well. And, uh, you know, one of my, my met teammates, Mark, uh, uh, Marcos, as he's named in the book, I'll leave it at that. We were patrol wardens, but we were paying to build our own sniper rifles, getting match ammo, getting our working our way into schools with San Jose uh, SWAT team, the merge team, the Santa Clara sheriffs, all these really good tactical units in the Bay Area. We were going to their sniper schools. We were going to their SWAT schools. We were going to their carbine, their pistol, their MP5 submachine gun operator. We were doing everything we could do. And <laughs> We t- our, our department wasn't going to sponsor that. That wasn't anything game we're yeah. supposed to be doing then. Obviously, it was a little too new to be that progressive. But we were taking time off, going on our own time and dime, and showing up at these schools where these other SWAT coppers would be like, Park Ranger game. <laughs> what are these guys? What are they trying to play soldier? Are, are you know are 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 they missing out in their in their jobs? What's going on? Well, we said okay, that's it. But what we did is. 
We worked our asses off. We made friends with everybody. We hustled. We shot really well. We ran all the time. We were uh, highly motivated, if not the high, very at the top tier of the motivated and effective guys in those schools. And pretty soon, all these other SWAT coppers and military spec op veterans would look around and go, damn, man, these game wardens are hardcore. These guys are cool. Uh, they're humble. They're, they want to help us. They want to learn from us. They're asking questions and they're shooting lights out and running and gunning. So we kind of can't help but include them. And then they start to think, oh, wait a minute. Now we got a rural op and now we got guys that know how to track and they can follow man tracks and animal mm -hmm. tracks and they can look for sign and they know how to use cover and concealment in the woods and camouflage themselves really well. And we started to train. And, um, and the cool thing was when I started to train with those same sheriff's deputies, Spag and, and Divert Snake and Rails and Mia and all those cool guys, um, I started teaching sniper schools with them. I got roped into the curriculum to start teaching and developing other snipers from the military and from law enforcement agencies. And to do that as a game warden, you know, that hadn't really happened before. That was a real honor. It was a real privilege. But what it was doing is it was unbeknownst to us at the time, it was preparing a handful of us to be ready mentally, physically, and tactically to form up MET. Mm -hmm. And take it to the next level. And we were really blessed as you as you as you dive further into Hidden War, you're going to find out that when I got the the opportunity from the chief to handpick and ask certain people if they'd be on this pilot program team to test it in Operation Pristine, like you mentioned, and then have them full time when we were green lit to run this thing full time and leave patrol, um, having a 20 year SEAL team veteran that was a sniper for nine years you know, that, uh, hunts and, you know, he's kind of taken thought, you know, like he told me when I asked, uh, when I asked frog, as he's named in the book to join the team, he said, Hey man, I never thought I'd operate and push a weapon again like this. And I'm going to give this a shot. You know, mm -hmm. I thought this would be a more traditional end of my career doing the game warden thing. And, and now he's the chief of the cannabis program, you know, in California and, you know, was pivotal and his knowledge and his expertise and his additions to the team was absolutely invaluable and a uh, brother for life on that. So we had great experience, both military law enforcement, special operations, one of the best handlers, if not the best handler that I've ever seen working in America um, with an amazing canine and more canines added to the mix, as you'll learn more about in the book and how these canines saved our lives and were dedicated and now how the, the cartels are hunting these canines when we do raids and we've lost some canines on the federal front because they know these dogs are so good and one dog takes out a grower or two, he just costs the organization anywhere between five and 20 million bucks because that grow is gone and that grower more importantly is now out of circulation. And he's a journeyman with knowledge and really good expertise at growing this stuff at putting the band poisons on it, at camouflaging it, at harvesting it, at distributing it throughout America, whatever the case may be. So um, yeah, Riverside did that. It definitely did that. And I just <laughs> have long windedly, thanks for your patience in this answer, but long windedly I've looked back now and I can attribute that catalyst to your question. So thanks for asking it. That's crazy. Never before. And now, you know, we talk about the marijuana enforcement team and, and you'll invariably get some people I'm sure that, that aren't really listening that are going to kind of roll their eyes. They'll be like, right. Oh my gosh. You know, it, we're not talking about like homie in his backyard no. with his like, or like, you know, three plants on the windowsill or his, right. his Amazon grow kit. He bought, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Amazon brand. I'm sure they have now. Amazon starter uh, plot with a uh, thin green line bong included. 
<laughs> I really hope that quote ends up uh, <laughs> in the previews of the podcast. Um, the you know we're not talking about like this is as you mentioned. I just want to highlight this again. These are drug cartels, serious right. drug cartels, like you see in the Netflix movies. Pretty much, yeah. Sending you know sending people up and. I think um, I can't remember if I heard it on another podcast you were on or if I read it in the book, but the concept of to them, like there's no border. It's, it's not an idea. It's not something that like, they're like, Oh, you know, we're over here. We're going to send people over. It's just like, no, this is part of Northern Mexico. And we're right. You know, according to those cartels, and and so they're just they're sending people up here. This is part of additional part of their territory that they're claiming to make these grows. And with with that, with these cartels comes not just not just you know okay a few marijuana plants, but you know aside from all the wildlife damage, there's as you said uh, firearms trafficking, there's human trafficking, there's all sorts of associated crimes of of. Uh, robbery and rape and this, that, the other that comes with cartel members flooding yeah. into yeah. California. Yeah. And two things you hit it on the head there. And I want to, I want to differentiate. We're not demonizing legitimate cannabis in any yeah. way. I, I mean, in California, we're now a regulated cannabis state. I honestly have tier one growers in the Emerald triangle that are true friends that are doing it completely right that love their wildlife, waterways and wild lands. They recycle and protect their water and they, they ration it. Um, I've seen it done correctly and, and we are not demonizing legitimate cannabis and not in California, not anywhere else. We are strictly talking about this as an environmental crime protection fight and public safety protection fight. And you know, you said it well, when we're talking about drug cartels that are doing all those other white dope crimes, um, we're talking about cannabis that is made for the black market to unsuspecting users, but the cartels, what people need to understand is they're using EPA banned poisons and toxics under the trade names of carbofuran, furidan, metafos that were developed, you know, in the forties and fifties here in America that are actually nerve agents and anticoagulants with some of the ingredients that were developed by the Nazis for their bioweapons way back in World War II. This stuff, Sam, is nasty. Um, and this stuff in a 12 to 16 ounce container, a crystalline that's dilute, made to be diluted with anywhere between three to 5,000 gallons of water before it's sprayed on agricultural crops anywhere in the world. And that's what it was originally used for here in America. But when EPA got their study data technology of toxicity up to a certain level and can really study this stuff. They determined 20 years ago that this stuff even diluted at that massively high volume of water diluted rate, that it was still too toxic for human consumption on our agricultural products. So it was banned in, ca- in the U S from being used mm-hmm. without special permits. It's a felony to possess this poison without a permit or to possess it period in a wildland environment under the penal code in California as an example. And all of these cartels that are growing in California and to a lesser extent, 27 under other U S states. And I've got the demographics in hidden war in the back with appendices and maps of showing national trends when you get out of the fun chapters. <laughs> um, yeah, it's heinous, man. And, and this is something legitimate cannabis does not want to see. We don't want to see our public medical patients, kids experimenting, recreational users ingesting this black market stuff that's very, t- very high potent t- THC content. So it's, it's good weed 
on a surface. And it's also far less expensive than organic, inspected, certified dispensary level cannabis. Yet it's going all over the Eastern seaboard, all over the Midwest, uh, all over parts of the, the Northwest and West as well. And it's still being distributed because regulation in most every state is so up and down and differently regulated. And there's taxes and inspection fees and all this other stuff. Our black market has not stopped in California. The cartels are not stopping. They're ramping up um, through COVID uh, condition of chaos for the world. Cartel crimes thrive on that. Cartel sells love things like pandemics and tsunamis and political unrest and civil war, mm-hmm. because all they're going to do brothers, you know, they're going to feed on that chaos when law enforcement and everybody's distracted doing other things, just trying to hold down the fort for our cities. They're going to go crazy in the woods, cooking meth, making fentanyl in these dirty labs. And then of course, doing this tainted cannabis in the woods. And, and it's been going like crazy for the last two years through the pandemic. So there's a whole issue in regulation there that we don't need to really go too far down the rabbit hole. But the yeah. bottom line is I'm, we need to differentiate for our listeners and our fellow conservationists. Hey, we're not anti-weed. That's not the story. We are looking at something totally different. Apples and oranges that the legitimate cannabis growers are as much committed to the fight against the cartel growers as we are. Even to the point in the last chapter of hidden War, you'll get to it. And I talk about, working with and presenting to legal growers that I never thought I'd ever do in full camos as a met (laughs) lieutenant and go to a a California growers association meeting of like 500 growers and their eyes are as big as silver dollars. And they're like, what's he doing here? This is a conflict of interest. He's working us. He's probably got cameras on our license plates, following us back to our farm. And I'm like, guys, no time out. We're about to regulate in a couple of months. I'm here to tell a story. I'm here to be a conduit for information, to take questions. Let's change this whole, let's change this whole demographic, the whole vibe. Yeah. And I put up my PowerPoint with some of the pictures you'll see in the book, the color ones, especially, and tell this story and show the damage and show the, the dead poison wildlife and the punji pits and the snares and the stab canines and, you know, uh, armed growers in, in full camos in a national park with an AK 74 looking like they're, you know, working a Taliban detail in the sandbox And I just get tears from these growers. I get jaws dropping, you know, and you can tell the ones that really resonate. And they're like, that's not us. Mm -hmm. That is not us. We love our wildlife. We're trying to do it right. We're trying to take the stigma against cannabis of being that traditional outlaw grower. We're trying to change that stigma. Um, and there, many of them are jumping up to help, you know, they're volunteering to go clean up cartel grow sites. They're donating money to, uh, reclamation 5013 C, uh, foundations like cannabis removal on public lands, the crop project that I'm a advisory board on now since retirement. Um, they're putting their money where their mouth is. I can't say all of them are, I can't say they're all doing it right. Cause they're not, there's still many violations on private land cannabis or, or cannabis enforcement teams see that, but we have a percentage of, of cannabis growers doing it right. And I think they're an example for the nation on how cannabis can and should be regulated correctly because they're coming from, I mean, you and I both know from California experience, California is the cannabis state. Oh yeah. One of only six true Mediterranean climates on the globe. Just like we grow great wine grapes in Sonoma and the Napa Valley, we grow great cannabis all over California, indoors and outdoors. So whatever California does to regulate, whatever those growers do or don't do right or wrong is really a template and a litmus test for the rest of the world. And that's not an exaggeration. And so 
and seeing that the cartels are most prevalent in California because it's a Mediterranean state, mm-hmm. um, we have the hotbed of it done at the absolute worst in magnitude. And we have uh, the opposite end of the spectrum where it's done really well by some good grower groups. And we, we're unifying that fight now. So um, not an anti-weed message, but public safety, environmental crime, like you said. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And so with that, you know, as, as readers will go through the book, you'll, they'll see for the most part, uh, you use, you tend to use code names throughout the yes. book and yeah. you blur out the faces and a lot of the photos and is, and I'm assuming that's because of the, the cartel ties. You don't want to be advertising, especially people that are still active right. in, in that service. Um, you don't want to be advertising that to anyone and everyone because they could sure. then be targeted, their families, whatever that sort of thing is. Is that am I reading that correctly? You are. You absolutely are. And we we always got to be safe. We're not giving away super uh, you know classified secrets that we know about cartel operations. Um, we're giving away basic public safety information and things like that to keep everybody safe. But we definitely watch our backs. You know, I, it's something I, I take extra extra cautious security measures, uh, even before Met was formed, even going back to publishing the first book, War in the Woods, just because we're talking about a national problem that's embedded in California that we're fighting firsthand. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about and telling this story for 15 years, and we still had to name the latest book Hidden War because so many people still look at the title and go, Lieutenant, I had no idea this was in America. Mm-hmm. I have not heard about this. I said, exactly. We've done three years of wild justice TV as game wardens. We've done documentaries. We've done everything else. And you still don't know about this on the East coast when I'm debuting this at the NRA annual, you know, with Oliver Norris endorsement of the book and, and him outraged by it. I, so we got to tell the story, but we got to take some safety precautions in that process because we are telling the story and we, we certainly do. Mm-hmm. No, it's uh, it's funny. You know, you mentioned that and you kind of even, you even look at the cover of the book and uh, you almost expect like, oh, this is going to be some, if you just didn't read anything else, you just kind of glanced at the cover, you'd almost be like, oh, this is going to be some Vietnam book about Vietnam or something, yeah. you know, or drugs in Vietnam. It's, you would never expect this to be today in California, in our, in our wild places. Yeah. And you know what? The, sometimes people see the cover and they see the cannabis leaf in the center. Um, and they misperceive it as an anti-cannabis book or yeah. like a very outdated, uh, you know, failed war on drugs, war on cannabis. And that's not what it is. Yeah. And when the second edition comes out, you're going to see the cover uh, manipulated a little bit. And we're going to have some added content, some pretty cool added chapters um, when the paperback version comes out in the next printing. But the bottom line is this is just an environmental crime, domestic threat to Americans from the cartels and not just in California. Again, the cannabis thing goes to 27 other States um, to a lesser extent and the methamphetamine issue, the fentanyl, the dirty drugs, the human trafficking. We're talking about that whole criminal enterprise um, and all the different little factions they have like a diversified business, you know, yeah. uh, Amazon sells every product. 
these guys, you know, commit every, every crime. crime. <laughs> it's, just, it's crazy. And you know what? And I, I don't say that. Uh, I, I say that with a little bit of respect and a little bit of awe of how effective they are and how embedded they are in America and how many tens of thousands, if not more cartel operatives we have embedded in the U S that are still communicating with Mexico. They're still trafficking all these drugs and this tainted weed and people, um, you know, through tunnels, Overland across the border, that's still happening. The book goes into and shows pictures of these one-way panga boats that are specialized, almost like special purpose boats built by the cartels to come in and get dumped on our Western seaboard somewhere, whether it be a California beach in Oregon or Washington beach. And with three to 6,000 pounds of tainted weed or meth or people, you know, and then the boats just scuttled right there. And this stuff's thrown into vehicles. And these uh, boat operators are now embedded with a team of transporters and they're embedded to do more heinous crap throughout America. And the hidden war is just that it's so much more than tainted cannabis. It's something. And we as wildlife stewards, as conservationists, you and me and everyone in, in the world, and especially your listeners on Wild Initiative, you could stumble on this any day. You know, you could be in certain parts of Montana in spring and summer, and you can find some small, it won't probably won't be massive necessarily like you're going to see in California, but you can run across this in any of the Western States. And a lot of hunters and anglers do, and they end up being our number one highest percentage informants that call the Cal tip 1-800 turn in a poacher and go, Hey, I, I was hunting with my son or my daughter on her first, you know, D 11 deer hunt in you know, the Southern California mountains. And I ran across a black water line and I saw a guy in camos and I think I saw an AK 47 and we hid and then we backed out. And, you know, some people have had very violent interactions with these growers and we know we've had missing persons and we don't know exactly what happened to them, but we do suspect, you know, um, well, there's a lot I, of money to be lost if these guys lose their farm to somebody seeing it other than a law mm -hmm. enforcement team. And it could be heinous results. Well, and I think that's one thing as California residents, especially those like kind of up in far Northern California and more inland, everyone knows you, there's certain places you don't go a little too deep. <laughs> you yep. know, I think you even talked about it in the book. You've got the people laugh, like when you say this, but it's the truth. We got the Emerald triangle up there. Yep. Like it is. And I think it's what it's a uh, Trinity. Um, uh, uh, what are the, what are the three counties? Siskiyou, Del Norton, Trinity. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Humboldt too. Humboldt. And you know, everyone, everyone knows like, Oh, yeah, you go to, I'm from growing up there. You know, everyone knows you go to Humboldt for weed, but like you talk right. about the Emerald triangle and it's a serious thing. It's a dangerous area. Um, you know, not that people shouldn't ever be out in the woods, but you kind of have to be when you're in those areas, a little more on alert. You do. Than you, yeah. than you do otherwise. You do. And now with regulated cannabis and some of the people doing it wrong, we have that in Riverside. You know, we have that in San Bernardino. We have it in OC. We have it in LA County. We have it a lot down South. Mm -hmm. um, our two med operators on the team, the younger guys are overwhelmed down there um, with forest service with, you know, the sheriff's departments. So it's really everywhere throughout California. And then with these 27 other States sprinkled all the way to the Eastern seaboard. Um, but, it, but yeah, it's, and it always has an imprint in the woods. That's just so negative. You know, this, this carbofurion, the pictures of it that are in the book, and it's, it's described very, very in detail. Um, two tablespoons of that stuff, Sam, no exaggeration. You, they dump it into a Creek by mistake or on purpose, and it's going to kill, you know, up to a couple miles of every aquatic within that stream. Mm -hmm. That's how toxic this crap is. 
And knowing that they literally put it in the water in these impoundment dams they create where they dam up a, a steelhead or a, you know, a deer fishery, whatever. And then they put the water, they put the poison in the water and then they pump poison water to the plants themselves. That water's in the soil. It's in the roots. It's on the flower. Um, you know, animals are get are ingesting it, you know, either orally or through absorption through their paws, hooves, uh, body, whatever. And so do people. So, you know, if a hunter or angler runs across this stuff and they have no idea they're in a grow site yet because they haven't got to plants, but this stuff's in the soil and they're, you know, they've touched it with their ungloved hand or unprotected hand, they can absorb this stuff and it's super toxic. So we need to be aware of it um, and need to report it and go through that protocol and understand what to look for. And the, the book pictures really give a good mm -hmm. idea of what you're looking at and when to back out safely after you take a nice photograph of that site and get those coordinates to the authorities immediately. Well, and I think one of the things going through the book that really had an impact on me, just even in those first few chapters was, I guess, for lack of a better term, how professional these guys were at yes. what they did and the complexity of setting up these sites. Cause you know, we're talking about, you know, it, I think, again, you, you talk about this initially and without the detail that's in the book, people automatically assume like, okay, yeah, you know, they put some rocks in a creek and it's yeah. right next to there. No, I mean, you're talking about like miles of, of black PVC piping and uh, professionally camouflaged areas with escape routes and camps and kitchens and like thousands of plants often or hundreds of plants and it's it's not again it's I'm trying to explain the magnitude of this that really had an impact on me reading about how uh, professional again for lack of a better term these sites were yeah it, it blows me away to this day I, again you got to have a certain level of respect and and take it very seriously when you go into one of these growth sites and see how good they are at diverting water on gravity fed water lines to fortify and supply the water needed for a five, 10, 15,000 plant grow. You know, there's all kinds of different figures floating around scientifically of how much water an illegal cannabis plant takes in the, in the, you know, in, on public land forests, for example, uh, figures as low as two gallons a day figures as high as 12 gallons a day, but no matter where you cut it, when you take an average of that and you multiply you know, thousands and thousands of plants by let's say six to eight gallons of water per day in a real hot summer climate outdoors mm -hmm. in California. And you know that 45 to 90 days, each plant's going to take that much water before it's harvested. If we don't interdict it. Now you're looking at water loss in the millions and cumulatively through the years, it becomes billions of gallons. And we know that the West is in another massive drought, like we had during the heyday of the Met years between 2014 and 2016. And now the water loss thing is happening again, because we're in another massive drought and some are saying climate change, but we're definitely seeing hotter temperatures and record temps here in Montana over the summer, 105 to 115 degrees on the Kootenai river in my backyard. Mm -hmm. That's never happened. That's not normal. But my point is, the water loss from these guys, and not only are they, you know, stealing water that's, uh, you know, affecting wildlife species and everything else, um, fisheries, but in some cases, in extreme cases, it's drinking water for tribal lands. It's drinking water for very small communities that have water rights and they don't have wells or, or they're going to have to truck the water in. So water loss is a really, really big water stealing from the standpoint of, again, 
that illegal trespass cannabis growers not to be confused with legitimate cannabis being roped into that water stealing moniker because that's a sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. Legitimate agriculture is going to take a lot of water. We know that, but it's going to be regulated. They're going to be doing it correctly. That is a loss we have to anticipate and we have to, you know, and it is absolutely sanctioned. It's this kind of loss from these guys that's never going to be allowed, especially when it's right at our headwaters where all that flow and runoff mm-hmm. from the winter is at its cleanest. And it's just going to work its way downstream with those, with those highly toxic poisons at the headwaters and just exponentially leave a train wreck where they go. And that is a wildlife enthusiast for you and me and, and our listeners is just, it's absolutely unacceptable. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things about this is you guys go in and, and, you know, you clear a grow site, you apprehend the growers and you, kind of restore the site uh, to as, as natural of a state as possible. You truck out the trash, you remove the plants, you uh, uh, remove the diversions out of the streams. But, you know, depending on what they did, some of these sites can take years and years before they're ever back to a natural state uh, because it, with, you know, those, those poisons in the ground with, with yeah. them in the water that has, or even just the diversion of the stream has decimated everything downstream from it. And it, it, it's not an overnight thing. Those fish don't, those fish just didn't like go somewhere else and they're like, Oh, Hey, uh, yeah. you know, the, the grocery store is open again. Let's head on over that way. Let's, you know? let's, let's go to our favorite stream. The one that's yeah. all wrecked. Yeah. No, that's spot on. And, and the thing about it is um, one of the figures we were doing up until I retired in 2018. And I, I, I don't know exactly where the team is on reclamation figures now, but Matt was able to reclamate and restore and clean up 44% of all the grows we ever engaged and dealt with. Um, during that tenure. And that doesn't sound like a high percentage, but that's a very high percentage given the amount of grows out there when most other, uh, you know, a lot of other agencies historically wouldn't reclamate at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it used to be five to 10% might get reclamated, we were at 44% and certainly trying to get better every year we progressed. And it largely comes from more funding, more bodies, time in the off season and having money for helicopters in the winter, in the spring, when you're not running red hot and hundred degree operational days. Um, but you're right. Even when we've trashed, just had a trash stream from a cartel grower and we've had all the bank vegetation taken out and all that silt running into the creeks and all that trash and all that human excrement and propane and, and bags of fertilizer and, and even the legal poisons that are still insecticides and poisons that close to a waterway. Even after you remove all that stuff, it's many years before in most cases that that area is going to have the cleanliness and the biological purity, if you will, for our species to thrive. Um, Good groups like uh, IERC and uh, Greta and and Dr. Murad Gabriel that are doing a lot of good work with that organization in California that are following Forest Service around and Fish and Wildlife, my old agency, and doing long-term soil samples and water tests to really look at the cumulative effects of this stuff after a grow has been reclamated is really eye-opening. And we reference some of that stuff in Hidden War in the appendices at the end. And you can certainly go to their publications and I have links for that in the book. But um, it, it's a lot, you know, it's really easy to tear stuff down, right? It's really, really hard to rebuild in its original setting. You know, and I think about if I, I lose my dream house, I built to a forest fire, let's say. And yeah, I got insurance and yeah, we're probably going to rebuild it. 
but is it going to be the exact same house? Is it, is it going to be that special build and done the way you wanted it? Probably not. And I think that analogy um, really bids well and accurate for our forests from one of these grow sites. Um, fortunately, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And right now, through the NGOs and non-governmental organizations and the, the foundations like the crop group I'm part of now and other conservation groups are starting to say, hey, we better put money and effort at this thing, not just the law enforcement teams and agencies, Forest Service, National Parks, Fish and Wildlife. Um, it's going to take a concerted effort. And uh, one of the best things about um, how we're going to solve that problem is to get the message and the outrage out there. And I thank you, brother, for doing that today by having me on and talking about this issue and talking about the book content because, man, power in numbers, man. <laughs> power in numbers. And, and the pin is mightier than the sword. We need to spread the message. And we're doing that today. So if uh, folks wanted to follow along online with everything you're doing, um, where can they, you know, where can they find the books? Where can they follow along with what you're doing? Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, www.johnnorris.com. That's J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S.com, all one word. My Instagram handle is at John Norris, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S. My Facebook is the same. Um, a lot of people want signed personal copies of the hardcover bound book that we're getting really, really low on before the next edition that has all the photos. I do personal signatures. You can go through my website to get to my email. You can also direct message me on Instagram. Um, the book is available on Amazon and hardcover as well in Kindle. And the other cool thing is we did an audible version for this book, Sam, that was a real nice. treat. And I got to read for the audible myself and work with a billboard artist, record producer friend, Trammell Starks in Atlanta, Georgia, that put an original score, sound effects, canines, water, gunshots, helicopters, oh, wow. where appropriate. And he did a magical job with it. He really did. And so the Audible is available on Amazon. And I know that um, the hardcover is good to have with the pictures if you want a personal signature and a personalized uh, copy. But that Audible is real fun to listen to when you're guys like you and me, where you don't have a whole lot of time to dive into a book. You're going to listen on the go. I'd rather be a podcast or an audible. So the audible's doing real well, but uh, reach out to me if you want any of that. I also do blade and book packages. I'm part of V knives. I'm a brand ambassador for the very cool blade uh, company called V knives under Mike Bellacamp. Um, he co-designed my signature folding blade. It's uh, the thin green line trailblazer. And it's a folder with a drop point that's made for skinning and gutting. Cause guys like you and me and our listeners need a field dressing knife, but it's got a tiny glass breaker, a seatbelt cutter, um, a, a lanyard, uh, a, a rocking, basically cam lever for fast deployment that handles as a hilt. And it's a D2 battle steel, you know, blade that's worked real well. So we're sold out of the first run of a thousand, but we're dumping a, uh, another, another couple thousand here in a month and a half. And I have a full line of uh, trailblazer, thin green line signature fixed blades coming out. So if anyone's interested in those are all on my website, you'll see updates on Instagram and something I do say, if, Anybody has a question about the game worn profession, safety in the woods, or you want some input or, or, uh, or advice, reach out. Um, the best thing about phase two post-retirement from operations and the, the book and doing podcasts like your great show is I get interest in the game worn career and people wanting to become part of the thin green line, either from a civilian standpoint and helping out with the message or fighting for the cause or being a game warden themselves. I'm here to help. Um, I have thousands and thousands of inquiries worldwide now since I've retired. And it's a real treat and honor to help people that 
don't have to do it like me where you have to meet a guy that you don't even know the job exists, you know, and uh, <laughs> I wish I could have done it a different way, but let, let's get people going. If uh, young men and women are interested and, uh, and some veterans or whoever's wanting to look at a different career, I'm glad to help with that. Also want to give you a chance to shout out the podcast. Yeah. Um, well, we've got two podcasts going. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I've got a lot going on and uh, I am a co-host with Lieutenant Wayne Saunders over in New Hampshire of Warden's Watch which is a podcast that tells warden stories from wardens all over, uh, not only the U S but Canada and internationally now. And we also added through COVID the thin green line podcast that's under the warden's watch umbrella. So we can bring in other conservation minded individuals of interesting stories, doing really cool stuff out there, stewards of our wildlife that aren't game wardens necessarily. So um, other podcast hosts like yourself, SEAL team veterans, military veterans that are conservationists, uh, biologists, scientists, politicians, entertainers, rock and roll musicians. I mean, we, we, we do it all. So uh, you can tune into that through wardenswatch.com. You can also get those podcasts on Apple and anywhere else you look for podcasts and definitely to give us a listen, man. We'd love to love to have you join on. Well, John, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to hop on. I absolutely love this whole conversation. This is one of my favorites I've recorded. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting this one launched for everyone. Sam, thanks so much for having me on, man. You, you have a great show. Kudos to what you're doing. It's a real honor to be here today. And I uh, look forward to doing some more cool stuff with you down the road. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Had a great time talking with John. Make sure y'all give him a follow. Pick up the books. You can find links to uh, his book, the books and the Audible version on Amazon on the show notes page. Make sure you also uh, go subscribe to the Thin Green Line and the Warden's Watch podcast. Uh, Give those a listen. They're really fantastic. Lots of great information in both of those. But y'all, it's been fun. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish this is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here from the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters enjoy the best fishing panama city beach has to offer during chasing the sun sundays at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.